Good morning, Gateway. We are working our way this summer through a series of lessons we're calling Faith That Works. And we're looking at the New Testament book of James. And a variety of us have had an opportunity to get together and talk about James. And we are sharing the communication load this summer. And this morning, many of you know him, but Gateway, I want to introduce you to Bill Russell. Bill will be... Bill will be bringing us a word today from James chapter 3, and he's going to be talking about taming the tongue, which, by the way, some of you need. So, take it away, Bill. Thanks. Uh, Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we study your word today, we know how difficult it is to tame our tongues. We pray that you would teach us, fill us with your spirit, bring this message close to all that we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's great that Ed, when trying to line up his speakers for the summer and taking some of the people that don't normally get an opportunity to preach, he thought, when we are preaching on taming the tongue, I know just the guy. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about three guys and the use of their tongue, three world changers, and I want to do it in the context of their impact on one 16-year-old boy. So the setting is 1934 in Charlotte, North Carolina, a farm town. And there's a 16-year-old boy who's plotting with his friend. See, they have heard that an evangelist is coming into town. And they have both grown up in church. And frankly, they're bored of church. And the last thing they want to hear is one more sermon about how they need to trust Jesus as their personal Savior. So they're plotting and trying to figure out, well, how exactly do we get out of this so our parents don't drag us so we don't end up going to this evangelistic thing? And they didn't know the impact that three men would have. The first man is an accountant. His name is Crook Stanford. By day, he's meticulously working through the numbers of his clients' books. Not all that different than you and I, probably feeling many of the same inadequacies. But it would be crooks that would pull this young boy aside and say, you really need to go hear this evangelist. Do you need a ride? Turns out, I guess he didn't need a ride, but the young boy felt the push. He felt the encouraging words. The second guy is a salesman. His name was James Patterson. By day, he was working on selling books for his company managing his own books and affairs. Very powerful in his words. But his words were powerful for a different reason. His words were powerful because they were used in prayer. He was a prayer warrior. It would be from the mouth of James that he would pray, Lord, please raise up someone from Charlotte, North Carolina, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. He had no idea how powerfully that prayer would be answered. The last guy is a man by the name of J.D. Pravat. J.D. was a tailor. He would spend his days nimbly working through the materials of his shop, prepping suits for the businessmen in town, and he volunteered for this evangelist coming in. The evangelist coming into town needed some people that would stand up afterwards and greet people that say, you know what, I really do want to trust Jesus as my personal Savior. How do I do that? Not all that different than our prayer team up front. 
J.D. said, I'd be happy to do that. So he stepped up, he volunteered. So after he finished work, he sauntered off to the evangelistic event, and this young boy would attend. See, if Crook was the boot to get him there, and James was the prayer power, then it would be J.D. who would earn the distinct privilege of leading Billy Graham to Jesus Christ. He had no idea what he would be doing that day. This man that you see before you is now 95 years old, has been in ministry for over 55 years, and has now preached to more than 200 million people sharing the gospel and asking them to trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. This all happened because of three people willing to use their words for the kingdom of God. Now the difficulty is, as we look at James today, it is James's words that challenge us in some ways scare us, but these same words were meant for these three men. They were meant for the accountant, for the salesman, for the tailor, and they're meant for you and I. So if you'll open up your Bibles with me to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and out of reverence for God's word, if you would stand. That's James 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You may be seated. James opens with an impossible imperative, which leads us to one of three questions we're going to ask today and also some fine print we're going to explore. And the first question is, are my words perfect? Are my words perfect? See, James's imperative is impossible. And it starts off, in your Bibles you might have a slightly different rendering, but after looking it up in, in many, most start with, not many of you should become teachers. You say, well, that's not really an imperative. Uh, that's because uh, generally in English, when we have an imperative, we don't supply the subject. But in the Greek, you can. The force of this is, do not, many of you, become teachers. 
It's an impossible imperative because the word teacher here is not the teacher you'd expect. It's not the apostles. It's not the elders. It's not even necessarily paid clergy. The word teacher here is the everyday teacher. It's the kind of teacher you might find in the marketplace on how exactly do you make shoes. It's the kind of teacher that could be used for just about any common task. Now, in this context, I do believe that the teacher reference is one of spiritual matters. But the word is so commonplace, the reality is we cannot escape being a teacher. Because it's the teacher in a sense of I'm influencing someone. I'm teaching a small group. I'm trying to convince them of something. Well, shucks, that happens all the time, right? In our workplace. Some of the co-workers, maybe you're teaching them or showing them a few things. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your kids. So this teaching imperative is all of a sudden very scary when I realize, oh my goodness, I may not be exempt from this whole teacher thing. To make it even scarier, in Hebrews chapter 5, we learn that the expectation of believers is to naturally, as we mature, to become a teacher. Depending on how fast you are with your iPad or iPhone, you can turn with me to Hebrews 5. In Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, it says, About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain, since you have become so dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. See, Hebrews 5 sets up this expectation that realistically, as we mature as believers, we should become teachers. So when I hear James's imperative, I get a little nervous. So why should we ask if our words are perfect? Well, he tells us a few different things in verses 1 through 3. First, he says, teachers will be judged more strictly. Well, that's great. So I'm going to be a teacher, and now I know I'm going to get even greater judgment. Awesome. The second is, all stumble in many ways. All right, this is starting to sound like the gospel message. It starts off with, you know, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, guess that means teachers too. See, we all stumble in many ways. And the third, he says in verse 5, the tongue is small, yet it boasts of great things. See, it holds great influence. The central truth of verses 1 through 5 is that the tongue is influential. The tongue is influential. So why should we ask if our words are perfect? Because the tongue is influential. Now, it, this section of Scripture is not saying that we have to be perfect. But it is a stiff Stiff. Warning. When I was working at Hughes Network Systems, I had been doing very well over the course of the year, and I had been transferred to a new project. As I was transferred to this new project, I learned all about the satellite equipment that they had had and how you could configure this equipment. And I, as the software developer, was going to get this great opportunity to build or to pick up a project to configure this equipment. I'm thinking, this is... It's awesome. I don't really know what I'm doing, but this is good stuff. To make it even more exciting, the guy before me who was working on it was there for a short period of time. He was working on his master's thesis, and I guess doing this project to get some credit for school. And so in the process, he had written this great documentation. 
I will never again believe the words of a master's level thesis. So in his document, he goes on and he says all these beautiful things about this software that he's been writing and how it's going to revolutionize the world. And one of the things he talks about is how much time it's going to save. How much time it's going to save these installers as they put out this equipment. I'm thinking, wow, this is really cool. I get to do some really neat stuff. Boss calls me into the office. Hey, I have a task for you. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just got that raise, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have some installers coming into town. Oh, okay. Uh, there are about 200 of them. Okay. We'd like you to present on this new software. What? Well, we need you to share with them all the benefits they're going to get as they use this new software you're working on. I've only been here a couple of days. Oh, I know, I know. But by then, you'll have been here a good week. You could read all the literature. You'll know everything that's in there. I mean, you'll be able to speak to this better than anyone here. Oh, okay. So I'm not just reading now. I'm now memorizing this guy's master's thesis. What did he say? And I'm putting together this great presentation. And I finally get there, and we show up, and sure enough, the room is packed with installers from all over the nation who've come to hear a series of talks, and I get to be one of their guest speakers who's so well-informed. You know what? I give a phenomenal presentation. I mean, it was awesome. And I'm going through, and I'm telling them all the stuff that this new software pack... It's a graphics user interface. The, The other one they had was old command line, and I'm going on, and... I'm speaking for a good 20 minutes. This stuff will save you half your time when you're doing the installs, as I go on to say, because that's what it said in the master's thesis. And I was good until the end. Any questions? Yes, you. I just have one question. Okay. So you're going to cut our minute and a half install time down to 45 seconds? For the, for the next five minutes, I'm doing some serious back battling. See, I was actually right, but my words were not perfect. The second question we want to ask is, are my words pure? So the next section is verses 6 through 8, and the central truth of this passage is that the tongue is evil. The tongue is evil. So if you look out with me, And 6 through 8, we're going to reread this section. It says, In the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. James does this really bizarre thing with the tongue. He personifies it as this evil thing. And you can almost see him taking out his tongue and slicing it off, setting it on the table. And the tongue, as it sits there, begins to writhe and grow horns. Start laughing. In poltergeist fashion, it begins to float around and start throwing chairs and yelling and ready to murder people. I mean, he does this crazy thing with the tongue. It's the tongue that's evil. 
He does it in such a bizarre way that the way he personifies evil in this tongue is he takes it and basically sets it aside almost as if I could do this. Oh, oh no, that wasn't my Facebook post uh, disparaging you. Uh, that was my tongue. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 that wasn't me talking behind your back. That was my tongue. Uh-huh. That wasn't me that started that gossip or spreading it. Uh, that was my tongue. And you can see how this would go on and on for various different settings. My favorite setting at Christian circles, if you're going to do something scandalous, I find it's best to do it in the form of prayer. Dear Lord, I'm really sorry about so-and-so who's struggling in their marriage or is struggling in their workplace and have stole some money. You know, saying something crazy that's going to get them in a lot of, uh, you know, what? Who? What happened? See, the tongue, though, it's, you know, as long as I can separate it from me, it's not so bad. He does this crazy thing. So why should we ask if our words are pure? He gives us a few different illustrations. See, in verse 6, he makes reference to this, it said, among our members, staining the whole body. Now, I think, in this passage, I think there's actually a double entendre here. I think he's actually trying to use body in the context of the tongue illustration, But I also think that what he's trying to do is use a common analogy that's already working in the church. And that is, we are one body. So we see Paul talk about that in the different epistles. We're one body with many parts. And I think he draws upon this illustration to remind us that our tongue in the midst of a community has tremendous influence. And oh, by the way, it's inherently evil. The second thing is that it is a world of unrighteousness. It's that inherently evil part. So why do we need to ask the question, are my words pure? Because our words affect everything. He goes on to say that it affects the entire course of life. See, my words, as much as I want to Ignore this reality. Every time I speak, I impact relationships. I impact my own future. Maybe even the future of my family. Every time I speak a word, unless it's done in private and nobody else hears it, maybe even then it does if it's influencing me. My words can affect my entire life. And unfortunately, it cannot be tamed. Verse 8. So how does that work for these three guys that helped Billy Graham? They would have heard this message. They would have understood this text. They would have been feeling intimidated. Fortunately, it's the fine print. I love fine print. Not really. But pretend I do. So I do when it comes to Scripture. When you look at stuff and you go, wow, okay, thank goodness there's something here because I was getting really nervous. Do you see it? But no human can tame the tongue. What's the fine print? Who can? Go ahead, you can speak. It's church. God. Who can? God. Right. No human can tame the tongue. But God can. That's the fine print. That's what's exciting about this. So even though I start off with this really crazy question, are my words perfect? And now I'm asking the second question, are my words pure? At least I know that I can rely on God to help me in this. But 
be no bones about it, the tongue is evil. Sometime back, there was a, an incident with my poor male lady. And in this incident, the male lady had come up and noticed that our basketball hoop was within eight feet or seven and a half, I don't remember the exact amount of space now. It was within some distance of our mailbox. And she comes up and notifies us that if you do not move your basketball hoop, I will no longer deliver your mail. I'm thinking, you fit. I don't understand. Not only do you fit, you're fitting there right now. I'm really having a hard time understanding this. You're clearly able to get to the mailbox. What's the issue? The issue is, sir, that you can't have your mailbox within seven and a half feet of some obstacle or some obstruction. Okay, so you're telling me that there is some kind of U.S. postal code that says that if I have an obstruction within seven and a half feet of my mailbox, you can unilaterally decide not to deliver my mail. Yes. Don't ever say something like that to me. I love the Internet. I spent the next, I don't know, probably 30, 45 minutes researching on the Internet. I'm going to find the postal code. I'm going to find this code to figure out exactly what it says. I want to know what the heck this thing says. So I'm going, I'm going to go look it up. I'm going to find the code. I can't find it. I don't see anything that gives her that right. Well, I mean, the, the natural next step is to go ahead and call the postmaster. So I call up the postmaster. Excuse me, sir. Yes, uh, well, first I have to ask for the postmaster. That's already a production. So I get the postmaster on the phone. I just want to understand, I'm trying to find the U.S. postal regulation that says I can't have an obstacle within seven and a half feet of my mailbox. He says, I'm sorry, I'm not really following. I said, yeah, you know, really, I'm not either. The difficulty is that your mail lady has come to my door and says she's not going to deliver my mail. Is there some kind of regulation? No, sir, there is not. Uh-huh. So what do I do with that? I've got this lady who's not going to deliver my mail. I will take care of that problem for you. Thank you. Click. I was right, but boy, was I wrong. I was right, but my words were not from pure motive. They were not pure. See, I wanted to be right, and I was but I lost a lot that day. Because you know what I realized after that? Every time I saw that male lady, I thought, I will never be able to share the gospel with her. Third question, are my words profitable? In verses 9 through 12, the central truth of this passage is that the tongue is fruitful. Are my words profitable? So looking back at this section, it says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's a curious reference here talks about our tongue both blessing God and cursing people. Cursing people I get, we drive in northern Virginia. Blessing God confuses me. 
it confuses me because I don't really understand what does it mean to bless God. So I had to do some research. I tried to hand wave this a couple of times and I realized, oh, I guess I really should understand what this means since I'm teaching on it. So I looked it up and it actually means to speak well of in this context. It means to speak well of God, to wax eloquently. So I'm going along my day. Oh, if you only knew what God was doing this week. Oh, what God is doing is phenomenal. Man, we serve a great God. He is so crazy good. You know what? I got into this jam last week and I was praying and Bam! Answered prayer. It's kind of bragging on God. That's the blessing God thing. So how does this work when I'm blessing God and then I turn around and I'm communicating with people in a way that doesn't glorify God? See, James is saying, this this isn't consistent. This doesn't work. So why should we ask if our words are profitable? He gives us some illustrations in 11 through 12. He talks about freshwater springs and saltwater springs. And the idea here is production. Does a freshwater spring spew up saltwater? No. Or salt fresh. It just doesn't work that way. See, this is about consistency. If my inward character, if my inward life, if my experience matches what I'm saying, then it's profitable. But if I'm producing one thing, from a well that's something totally different. It doesn't work. He goes on to talk about fig trees producing olives and grapevines, figs. This doesn't happen. And it shouldn't happen with us. It shouldn't happen with our words. We shouldn't be waxing eloquent about how amazing God is and then turn around and start cursing people. I love the comedian uh, Tim Hawkins and one of the things he says he's talking about drivers with the fish on their car. And he says, you know, it's not your Christian walk I have any problem with. It's your Christian drive. And he's speaking to the heart of this consistency. We have to have consistency. So why should we ask if our words are profitable? It's because our words need to be consistent. So taking the mail lady truck a year later, my daughter Tessa shared with me this as I was working on the sermon. And I'm going to share it with you and hope you guys won't judge me. But, you know, it just makes it even worse. If you're going to judge me, you already have, so it's all good. But she wrote out her prayer. I don't know if it was in a diary or a letter, but she had written out this prayer a year later. Dear Lord, please help the mail lady to not be mad at us and somehow share your truth with her even though we, she was nice, she said we, even though we were so mean to her. Proud papa moment. My words weren't consistent. Even though I was speaking right, it wasn't profitable. It wasn't glorifying God. So how do we apply this? Well, first is we need to intentionally pray for the people we are influencing. We need to intentionally pray for the people we are influencing. We've already said that in these three questions, we can't do it. So instead, we're going to turn those questions into prayers. Dear Lord, please make my words perfect. Please make them pure. Please make them profitable. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are amazing in so many ways.
And we recognize that in so many ways we are inadequate. We pray that you would use us anyway. We pray that you would make our words perfect, pure, and profitable. In Jesus' name, amen.